0: Welcome to the Measure Success Podcast, where we feature top leaders on how they measure success in their business and life. Now, let's learn from their experiences.
1: Carl J. Cox here. I'm the host of the Measure Success Podcast, where I talk with top leaders about effective strategies that inspire success. This episode is brought to you by 40 Strategy. 40 Strategy is built to make strategy work for small to medium sized companies by designing world class strategic plans, but more importantly, keeping them accountable to actually get it done. To learn more, go to 40strategy.com. We're also really excited. We have launched the Captain Strategy course. Now we have the ability to not just serve you on an individual basis, but in a group oriented session. We'll walk you through our seven key principles that we outlined at Lost at CEO to help create your strategic plan that will actually work. Once again, to learn more, go to 40strategy.com. We'd like to do a shout out from time to time. And Stephen Pemberton, thank you, buddy, so much for our introduction to John Jennings today. And thank you, Let's talk about <laughs> Yes, exactly. So John is president and chief strategist of St. Louis Trust and Family One's, a $15 billion wealth management firm. As an author and speaker, he's a leading voice in the space of wealth management and leadership. He just recently released his new book, The Uncertainty Solution, which is getting incredible reviews. It's an engaging dive to investing philosophy and best practices as well as an authoritative and accessible guide for anyone who feels inundated with all the financial news and data you see every single day. So you definitely, as Charles Schwab has said, this is a must addition to anyone's reading list. John, welcome to the Measureless Podcast. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Well, why don't you start with your core? What, what does that mean? You are a, uh, a manager, investor uh, in wealth management. For those who aren't familiar with it, what do you do? And then secondly, I would like to take a aside, what differentiates you from everybody else?
0: Yeah, so we are what's known as a multifamily office and we're you know with our name Saint Louis Trust and Family Office we're also a trust company so that's how we're we're structured but we're, we're pretty unique we we have a, we work with about 60 families and we have 60 employees so a 1 to 1 ratio and to have that sort of ratio you have to have pretty big clients and i don't necessarily mean big physically i mean they're a pretty trim and fit bunch actually <laughs> so you no know, big financially so we work you know we work mainly in the Fifty million, uh, you know, five or six hundred million dollar range. We have some above, some some below, but our, our average client has about two hundred and something million. Our median is about one seventy. So, that's that's what we uh, that that's who we work with. And you know, we do we do investment management, so we invest their money. But all the family office stuff, we you know help them with tax planning and estate planning, running all their estate planning entities, cash flow, bill pay, philanthropic. And on and on and on and on, you know, and and just whatever comes up. So, and, and how we're differentiated is really, you know, pretty much every business has a trade-off between customization and scalability, right? And in general, if you can scale, you'll make more money. So, like, we have 60 employees, 60 families. You know, imagine if we had 60 employees and 120 families, right? We'd be like, where are we going to stack all our Benjamins, right? We'd have to, like, put a padlock on a closet here, right? So... Um, but we don't do that. So we intentionally stay ridiculously customized. And we do that because there is nobody else in our little sliver of space of being highly, highly customized, only working with you know, families in this really, really ultra high net worth uh, area. And, and even though we're based in St. Louis, actually, most of our clients are outside of St. Louis, so all over the country.
1: What is the biggest surprise when a new client comes to you that they didn't experience beforehand?
0: Yeah, you know, a lot of clients, they don't really know what their cash flow is, like what money is coming in and what money is coming out. And I think that's, that's probably true of pretty much all levels, you know, you just kind of make it work. Right. (laughs) And so what we start with, and it's so unsexy, there's so much that we do that is like not sexy. Right. But uh, one of the things we start with is, is cash flows. Like we got to get a handle on that. Like what exactly is coming in, what's going out, what's regular spending, you know, what's, you know, let's what what sort of extraordinary expenses and extraordinary expenses happen all the time. So it's like, you know, let's let's plan for, you know, extraordinary expenses. But but yeah, that's that's been um, that's that's been interesting. But but again, like I think it's pretty much true of everybody. Um, You know, another thing is 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 working as I have for pretty much my entire career with with families of of great wealth is is that they're just people. um, And, you know, what a burden and how much challenge there can there can be to having a lot of wealth, like you think, oh, you know, I have my family has 100 or 200, 300 million dollars. It's like, you know, I don't have worries anymore. You know, it's all puppies and butterflies. And it just really isn't. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of management and complexity and it can create, you know, family issues and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's been interesting to be, you know, advise
1: on those issues as well. So I don't pull on that string for a minute, John, because so many people's goal is to make a certain amount of money, right? I'm going to, once I make this money, I'm going to be happy. Right. So, and then, you know, you have people, of significant wealth that you're working mm-hmm. with and you just described it. They're people and they have problems too. So how do you help a people who are heading towards there and then people who are in there, To help gain, if you may, a bit more peace over all the challenges that they're having. Because once again, it seems like, oh, this is a rich person's problem. But the irony is, it seems like so many people are trying to get to there and they don't realize it's not all, as you said, it's not all unicorns, right? You know, (laughs) that that we're going to have
0: when we get to that space. Yeah. So it's interesting. I'm um, working on my next book and it's for now titled How to Be Wealthy. And it's not How to Get Wealthy. But once you're wealthy, how to do it well, you know, with with purpose and happiness, and not ruin your kids, and not have you know all the worries, um, you know, and how how to use there's great opportunity advantages of having wealth, obviously, and but how to use those in a productive way, how to make your dent, you know, in in the universe in a pr- productive uh, productive way. So yeah, I'm, I'm writing a, a book, just <laughs> my second book on on that that topic uh, uh, exactly, and you know it's a, it's a challenge because the wealth can take on a life of its own. And for, a, for a family with great wealth, it's, it's like having a, a small business or sometimes a medium-sized business. And as, as we all know, it's, it's difficult to be family members. I mean, it's great to be family members, but you know, you think about your, your relationship with siblings and cousins and parents and everything. I mean, then, then throw on a few hundred million dollars, (laughs) you know, sometimes going to make it worse. Or if you own a family business together, or you have trusts that you're, you know, co-beneficiaries of, or, you know, goodness, like, can you imagine like your brother's your trustee or your uncle's your trustee? And, um, you know, you have a family partnership and you have a family foundation and you all have to work together and your family members. I mean, it's, uh, it it really can create um, a lot of challenges to work through, I, I'll tell you, net, net, I think having wealth is better than not having wealth, but not always. And I think there's this concept of that we all know of having enough. And it, it's tough to say, okay, now I have enough. Like we all live in abundance. Um, well, almost everybody lives in abundance these days in the United States. Like we live in ab- abundance, but we often, it's partly how we evolved to have the scarcity mindset, right? And to just set it aside and go, I have enough. Like, you know, if if my wealth or my income doubled tomorrow, like if if nothing much would change other than your feeling of financial security, like you're there. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. No. So, that, so like that's... I
0: like I have a lot less wealth than you know our clients do. And I consider myself wealthy because I absolutely have enough. But I might not have thought that had I not worked with all these families that have multiples and multiples of, of, you know, what, what I have and, you know, they're not any happier. And if anything, sometimes have, you know, challenges that I don't have to deal with.
1: Yeah. It's, I appreciate you sharing that and going through of once again, this challenge of I have it, but I don't. Right. And, and also recognizing of that, that being wealthy is more of a sense of being right then yeah. than yeah. how many dollars that are in your bank account um, right. And right. so right. I, I appreciate right. you sharing you know through that process um, I, I I know oh I, you had a, when we did our prep interview under this you had a great comment into what how you measure success. Um, but we're going to get there not yet not yet. Um, so other pieces, people come in they change. what is some of their after effects? So what are some of the results? that people experience of pre and post, right? So pre wow. was, they come in, they don't know how much, they don't know really where the cash was coming from. They don't have clarity of their goals and mission for the future. What is some of their experience they say is, wow, John, you know, a year ago, we didn't we didn't know what we're going to get into, but now two, three, four years later, what what is that kind of, if you may, how they measure success now, your clients, when they get to that next spot? Well, I, I think it's largely, you know, we go around, and we ask our clients
0: and, and what they say is peace of mind. And it's that, you know, th- they know that they have enough liquidity. They know that they're invested appropriately. <laughs> they they know that all the, you know, all the, the tax things are being taken care of, that they have the right estate planning. Um, we get hired quite a bit by people that are about to die. Um and they say, I want someone that will take care of my, you know, my spouse and my, my kids, you know uh, you have these people that handled, you know, everything that was going on them themselves, you know, for better, for worse, or, or and, and they say, you know, I know that when I'm gone, I can't imagine, you know, my wife or my husband or my kids being able to, you know, grasp this, you know, complex reality of my, you know, this great wealth that I've created. So that that happens quite a bit, like, you know, over the last ten years, you know, three or four times, <laughs> I was like, "Wow!" And we, and we only take on about you know five clients a year, so th- three or four times over the last decades, quite a bit. One last year, yeah. so yeah, wow. so it's, yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, I really do think financial success is you, you know investment returns are important, um, but I'll tell you, for families as wealthy as as ours are, you know, getting getting the taxes right, the income taxes, especially the the wealth transfer taxes the state gift gst taxes like you can that's really where so called alpha can be be added there cuz it's it's really hard to, you know outperform the market or you'd be picking investments that are just you know crushing things but you know if you're with talented advisors you can hugely reduce the amount you're going to pay in taxes which can have a much bigger effect than you know whether you earn 7 or over the next, you know, 20 years, which not, not saying that that's not big earning a a percent more over 20 years is huge, but you know, the tax effect is even bigger. And we, we've have client families that come to us all the time and, you know, they haven't much planning or they've done planning and it's been small they've been you know with an advisor that thinks you know doing a 5 or 10 million dollar estate planning transaction is a big deal and it's like no you know this family has 300 million dollars they should be like doing a 100 million dollar transaction you know and they they just the needle hasn't been been moved but you know if you if you plan early and often um you can and you live a normal life expectancy the way things are structured now even if you have hundreds of millions of dollars you don't need to have an estate tax it's optional
1: Wow. It's brilliant. And I think it's interesting. So you make that comment about the importance of estate taxation and setting up things the right way. When, what level, if you may, of wealth, does it make sense for people to make sure they're doing the basics or perhaps even going to the next level where they like, they should really get some serious uh, guidance on how to do the right thing?
0: Yeah, I'll answer that in two ways. And and the first is it it depends on what trajectory you're going to be on. So even if you're worth, you know, just, you know, single digit millions, but you have a business, um, it may make sense to have at least part of that business owned outside of your estate. And I'll tell you, it's happened like in the last two years, two different of our client families sold their business and their business was owned a hundred percent in a, you know, a generation skipping transfer tax exempt dynasty trust or whatever you want to call it outside of their states. And, you know, the amount that was put in over time was, you know, single digit millions into these, these trusts and and each of these businesses sold in excess of a hundred million dollars and there'll never be any estate tax on it. So, you know, even it's it's not even about that much about your level of wealth now. It's about, what do you think your company is going to do? So, and, and you can make the planning um, flexible enough that, and, and I won't get into like all the strategies. And by the way, I started my career as an estate planning attorney. So I get a little wonky here, but you, you can set things up where you or your spouse are trustees and or beneficiaries of of, of trust. And they're still outside of your, your estate. And there's different complexities to doing these different things. It's not like plain vanilla, but if you go to a, a top estate planning attorney, they're going to be able to say, oh yeah, we're going to allow you to have your cake and eat it too. And so the company takes off, it's great estate planning. If it just is like, you know, just moderately successful, it's not really going to harm your situation. You can still get cash flow and and, and do things. Um, but I'd say anybody, I mean, currently the, the estate tax exemptions are just right under $13 million a piece. So that's $26 million. But they're set that's set to sunset and probably go back to the, you know, below 10 million, maybe you know the five million dollar range. In 2026, I mean, we can't predict anything that's going to happen politically, but, you know, I'd say when people start getting to that double digit millions, it, it starts getting to, yes, you should absolutely
1: be doing the next level of estate planning. Love it. Okay, that, that's really good. Now Let's pop your book, uh, The Uncertainty oh. Solution.
0: All so- right, let's do it
1: super exciting, right? You, you, you got your first book out. You, you talked about beforehand. we spent a lot of time on this call, just how much effort you've been doing to uh, first of all, to have it be a great piece of work, but then secondly, to get it out there in the wild so people can catch the book and be aware of the book. When people have been reading it, what has been their big insights or insights that have been coming out through it? Yeah. So, you know,
0: the the reaction has been um, very positive, which I, I feel great about. But you know, one reaction is is you know, this book has an investment slant, but it's not really an investment book. So you know, it's called The Uncertainty Solution, How to Invest with Confidence in the Face of the Unknown. But it, it really has a big component on why we've evolved to dislike uncertainty, what we usually do, what we should do instead. And really what we should do instead is I talk about my book is uh, mental models. So mental models are, are things that are true about the world that you study and you put like in a lattice work, or I think about like, like arrows in a quiver, and you know which ones to pull out when. And there's 35 mental models in the book, and each of them are absolutely applicable to investing, but they're also applicable elsewhere. And I'll, get, I'll give you one. So Um, maybe this example won't make people want to run out and buy the book, but uh, well, you know, there's a chapter, chapter eight's called the trivial Many versus the vital few. And what this book, what the chapter is about is about bell curves and power law distributions. And so many things in the world follow, you know, bell curve distributions, you know, height and weight and, um, you know, uh, you know, size of trees. And, you know, there's, there's all, there's all these things that, that, that follow bell curve distribution. But there's a lot of things that, that don't. So, for instance, Carl, you and I were talking about book sales. So, like the median book in the US sells 300 copies, the average book in the US sells something like 6,000 copies. But yet, 2% of authors or only 2% of books sell over 5,000 copies. So, how does that happen? You know, of authors generate 60% of the revenues. So this is a power law distribution where you can't really look at averages because you have the Stephen Kings and the J.K. Rowling's and the James Patterson's and the Malcolm Gladwell's. And, you know, you can see that your bookshelf back there, like Extreme Ownership, Good to Great, you know, Grit, all those books behind you, uh, all of which I've read and they're fantastic books, are these huge sellers that sell tens and millions of books. Which pulls the average up, but the median is very, very, very low. So that's a power law distribution. And it's human nature for us to think in terms of bell curves. But many important things in life follow power law distributions, including the stock market and their its returns. Yet mathematics around investing follow a bell curve. And everybody knows in investing that it doesn't follow a bell curve, but they but they use it anyway. And the reason is, is because if you use a bell curve, it tells you a bit what to expect about the future, right? So they're using a flaw model that doesn't work (laughs) instead of saying it follows a power law distribution, which means you can't predict it. It's wild randomness, but people don't like that. So, you know, what I talk about in my book is understanding that. So when your financial advisor your investment advisor gives you things like, here's, you know, the expected level, you know, your, here's your expected return and your expected standard deviation, which is volatility and, you know, your sharp ratio, which is kind of your bang for your buck and how much risk you're taking for your, your, your volatility and all these statistics, you know, trainer and information ratio and and upside capture and all this stuff. It's all based on a model that doesn't work. And, Mm And, and, you know, the more erudite ones, they know that. <laughs> the 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 less sophisticated are like oh this is what my program shows me and what it does and it leads following the bell curve leads to all these these issues it arguably gave us the financial crisis because you know then big investment banks were using these value at risk models where they were you know taking large amount of risk in areas where they thought there was low risk and they were wrong it didn't follow bell curve <laughs> Yeah. So so anyway, it's it's things like that, and that's that's a little wonkier of a of, of an example, but uh, uh, interesting I think, nonetheless. I
1: think. I, I think so too, and of course, I do come a bit from a numbers background, so I appreciate what you're saying. But that concept alone of the average versus median for people to understand that more, I think it's so the you know the power law distribution versus you know the the typical bell curve, and you know we all know if if you would have invested more in Amazon 15, 20 years ago, right? Versus the general market, you would have blown out the market, right? Totally, totally. Yeah, so
0: you're right because the, the return, the distribution of returns in the stock market is skewed. So it's a negatively skewed distribution. And what that means is that maybe not every year or even every two or three years, but as you go out longer, the average return in the stock market exceeds the median. So over the last 20 years, 74% 74% of stocks produced a below average return. And you go, how is it that two or three quarters of stocks give you less than the average return? And a huge amount were you know um, um, you know a decent amount like you know 20 percent of, of the stocks like lost money over the 20 years or went to zero. And the answer is that the most you can lose in a stock is hundred percent. But the most you can gain is, you know, theoretically unlimited, even though it's not unlimited. But like in the last tw- twenty years, Apple's up over nine thousand percent. Sherwin Williams is up over five thousand percent, and you know, Humana is up like you know four thousand percent. So you have all these companies that have gained hundreds and thousands of percent. That they pull the average up, whereas three quarters of the stocks are below average. And so again, this is this power law distribution concept. And that is one of the mental models in my book, this idea that the the returns in the stock market are skewed. And the way you use that is you say, listen, if I buy an individual stock, I am flipping a weighted coin where it is weighted against the stock I bought, period. Now, it doesn't mean you should never own an individual stock. It just means you, if you hold it over a longer period of time, and if you trade short term, you're, you're going to do it even worse, by the way. But if you hold it for a long period of time, the odds are highly against you that you will outperform the market. But there is a chance, to your point, like if you had bought Microsoft 40 years ago, holy cow, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, there's this, this temptation to find these high flyers, but it's not just like Microsoft and Amazon. It's things like over the last 20 years, TJ Maxx is in the top 100. And you know, the United Healthcare, you know, group, Sherwin Williams, you know. So it's it's not just obvious, even in retrospect, what you you should pick.
1: Yeah. No, I perfect discussion of that. And I appreciate you providing more depth, right? Of because some people would lead to believe, oh, I need to find that one stock. But once again, the chances right of you being right and in, in timing it properly, oh. right, to be able to hit to there is extraordinarily difficult right you know that's why I went to game have to stick with most people to be in the market yes. yeah like over the last 20 years I mean Amazon and
0: Apple um you know Apple you know it's easy to say oh I would have bought Apple but like you, you know Apple was basically on the verge of bankruptcy and they bring in you know Steve Jobs and you know it it wasn't really till the iPod that they started to take off but then when you know Steve Jobs dies and then you have Amazon that have had you know multiple drawdowns of over 40 percent and all these companies have Microsoft happened to. So then you have to be able to stick with it and say, you know, oh my gosh, I've lost 40, 50, 60% even of, you know, from my high on my investment. And now I'm going to stick it out because that's what happens when you invest in these, you know, really good long performing stocks just over time, the ride's incredibly rough and behaviorally really hard to stick to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, um, this is, uh, I remember when Amazon went down to, I think it was like seven bucks. Back in two thousand, right? I think it dropped all the way down to like seven dollars, and and nobody wanted it. It was a dog. It was a part of. It, it was it was put into the internet bubble and thrown at all these other stocks, and and nobody wanted the stock. And holy cow, if you would have bought it at seven bucks, a lot of it, yeah. Even if you bought a hundred shares, you would have done really well. <laughs> well, and I, I so, remember,
0: um, you know, I remember like in nineteen ninety eight or nineteen ninety nine, talking to an investment manager, and we asked about Amazon. And, and they own some growth stocks. So it's like, why don't you own Amazon? So again, you know, kind of in the midst of the, the dot-com boom. And they said, you know, we look for companies that have a big moat. And, you know, so they, there's barriers to entry for other people. And all Amazon is, is an online bookseller. <laughs> They're like, any of these other, you know, uh, Borders book was books was out there at the time. You had Barnes & Noble. Uh, you had all these other, you know, bigger bookstores. B. Dalton, you know, you all these other bigger bookstores. And they said all they have to do is set up a website, and they will crush Amazon. <laughs> and at the time, I was like, "That is a great point. I'm definitely not buying Amazon." <laughs> I mean, we didn't. It, it wasn't instantly the everything store, right? It was just books. Right. Yeah.
1: It's 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 uh, so fascinating once again. It's always easy to look back and go, or look, you know, go. Oh, I should have, should have, would have, could have. But knowing where I was, just like I said, sage advice. That was actually really wise advice, typically. Yeah. Did they have a moat? Did they have the ability to get into it? Anybody could have put up something and created a bookstore, but there was more to the story, obviously, as we look back.
0: Obviously, now. there was more to the story, yeah. So, so my book is these sort of mental models where you know which ones to pull out. So if you're going to buy an individual stock, it doesn't tell you how to analyze a stock, whether you should buy it, when you should buy it, when you should sell. But it does say go in with your eyes wide open as to what the probability is. And then also understand that wild randomness will erupt in the stock market. Like the unexpected will happen. And to expect the unexpected, like the highly improbable happens all the time. That's another, you know, that's another um. You know, mental model that's that's in the book. And other things like, you know, the stock market is a complex adaptive system and, you know, stories about correlation and causation and skill versus luck in investing and, you know, uh, understanding, you know, market cycles. So it's, it's it's things like that that are in the book. Awesome.
1: Okay, let's flip to the personal side, John, because I always, you, I know, is that an R ring that you have uh, yes. on there? Okay, so perfect. Yeah. So obviously you are into... Personal development, self-development. My sleep score was 87 last night. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. You're all in. Mm -hmm. What type of habits are you doing on a consistent basis to help perform your best? Well, I'll tell you what I do,
0: and then I will tell you what I try to do. (laughs) Um, Okay. So years ago, I went to something called the Johnson & Johnson Human Performance Institute. And they used to do other than just Johnson and Johnson employees. So you could pay like all this money and go down to Orlando, and then it was this three day of you know testing. But they had talked to you about nutrition and exercise, but then also the mental side, like the, being a high performer, but hopefully lower stress. But really, what the, what they said. Is and it stuck with me, and, and I have a blog called The Interesting Fact of the Day that uh, is like on my website, and I, I wrote about this this point in one of my blog posts. But they had this pyramid where they say, you know, really in terms of physical health, like you start at the the ground and then you move up on what's most important, and and at the at the bottom was sleep, like the most important thing is to get good sleep, and then the next most important thing is nutrition, then strength training, and then cardio right? They're like, that's what you need to prioritize. Like you could do the top three. And if you're not getting good sleep, which is why I wear the Aura ring, you know, that could, helps me track and understand patterns of sleep and what sort of things interrupt my sleep. But so sleep is most important. Then nutrition, I've been vegan for 21 years. Um, I would give myself an A minus in terms of being, you know, healthy vegan because <laughs> I still eat some processed foods and things. Um, I prioritize then strength training and then I do some cardio and I'll tell you earlier, you know, I would have been like all about cardio and I used to be like making sure like come hell or high water. I'm going to get up and, you know, go on that run or whatever, but it was like the very top of the pyramid. And it wasn't necessarily the sleep and, you know, I wasn't doing much strength training. So that really helped me going to to Johnson and Johnson And, and other things like, um, you know I read lifespan by David Sinclair on like longevity, so I do some of those things. I in the middle of Peter Atia's book called Outlive, where he talks, you know, again, it's very consistent with the Johnson and Johnson and with David Sinclair, but you know what sort of things help. Uh, the things that I do sporadically that I should do all the time are meditate. <laughs> I'll get on these kicks where I'll do it every day for two weeks and then not for a week. and then yoga. so, again, I get on these kicks where I do, you know, 15 minutes of yoga a day. I think that's so important for flexibility and, you know, some core strength and everything, but I beat myself up all the time that I'm not more consistent um, in in doing that. So that's, that's on like the personal health sort of thing. Um, you know, I think the, the vegan things made a, a big impact in my life and it's, it's not, it's not willpower at all. Like I have no desire to eat animal products. In fact, I used to, um, really, like have this sort of panic sometimes, like, like kind of bad dreams or, you know, um, like even during the day, a little panic that somehow I'd be, you know, convicted of a crime, whether I committed it or not. And I'd be sent to prison and I couldn't eat vegan in prison. Like I'd have to eat meat because they wouldn't, they'd be like too bad, you're a prisoner. And, you know, it's kind of an irrational, uh, you know, fear, but I, I just, I just mentioned that to, you know, talk how
1: like committed I am to the vegan thing. And it's not willpower. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Well, I think that's important of not necessarily being vegan or not, but the importance of having a conviction behind what you're doing. You know, often we'll try to do certain behaviors and habits, but if we are not bought into the long-term vision or the the, the conviction of why it's important to us, it's hard to stick to it, right? Because there's always going to be temptations to break our habits. Like, you know, for some reason, and I, you and I are the same, I've just started yoga a little bit, a little bit. And and I it's working right when I do it. Um, how do we create that ha- that the habit? Yeah, habit. And but more importantly, the long term why I have to, right? Where it becomes a no, it it is not a choice. Just like you've chosen to learn the importance of sleep, that's now in the the most important part of your foundation. How do you take that for those other things? And I think that's a challenge anytime when you when you tackle these habits. How do you make multiple things to be a consistent conviction, right? So we're going to actually get it done. So how do you now measure success in your personal life?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think when you and I talked, I, I said, one of my, I, uh, again, I wrote a blog post on like, how do you measure success? And I listed out a few and probably my favorite is, you know, you're successful if you have enough control of your life that you can schedule your day around a nap.
1: <laughs> love that.
0: And, you know, that's not, you know, that's not a universal thing. You know, like I, like I have a friend who's a doctor, like, he loves what he does. He's top of his, you know, craft. He's he can't schedule his day around a nap. I mean, he's a doctor. So I'm not it's, it's not it's not a universal uh thing. So if there's anybody listening going, oh well I don't have that ability, it doesn't mean you're not successful. It's just it's a it's a it's a fun uh, you know, it's a it's a fun, it's a fun definition, I think. Um, you know, I think there's this tension between, especially if you're like a high performer, between frustration and growth, right? So you, you have to have a sense of frustration wanting to change yourself or change your company or something around you to have growth. but that same sense of frustration I think can take away your your feeling of you know pleasure or, or, or achievement um, and I'll tell you when it comes to like books, like like I wrote this book and I'm really proud of it. it took a lot of therapy by the way I, I, it took over a year of therapy to actually write it because I, I was like afraid there's vulnerability and you know, would it detract from my personal brand? Would it not be very good? You know, so it took a lot of a lot of therapy, but I was just really pleased that I'd written it and, and it, I do think it's good and I'm proud of it. So, you know, that's great. But then you have these other like, you know, like milestones you would like to hit. And I, I read this, um, I've read a lot about, you know, promoting a book and I read this book or this this blog post by the this guy who wrote this book, um, Just Keep Buying. I guess it's done pretty well, really well. Cause he said in his first year, it sold 70,000 copies. That's amazing. Just so you know, that, that that puts it up in the, you know, the top quarter of a percent of all books or something last year. So 70,000 books is a, is a lot, right? And, and he had said in his blog post that like his, his like goal would be like success would be able to sell 10,000 books in a year, by the way, which is still ginormous. And then he thought that like, I forget, 20 or 30,000 would be like huge and like 50,000 would be just ridiculous. Like, oh my gosh. And he goes, you know, what's interesting is now that I've sold 70,000 and like I've crushed, like I've crushed all my sales goals. He's like, I still look and go, oh yeah, but I know somebody that sold, you know, a million, you know, and why isn't my book selling a million, you know? And it's like, he's like, I, I feel like I've just gotten enough taste of success that I want more, Right. And I think that's really the challenge, especially for high achievers, is you always tend to have this sense of frustration. And it's so hard to s- step back and, you know, appreciate what you've done at every level. And I just thought this blog post was was tremendous. And the vulnerability he showed to, instead of being like, oh, look at me, I've sold 70,000 books, you know, you know, I'm the man, you know, he was more like, I have, but I still have this feeling that I'm like, not being all that I can be with this book, just crazy. So yeah. So if my book sold 70,000 copies. I would like to think like, oh my gosh, like, and I would be, but
1: I probably be like, oh, well, how do I get to 250,000? You know? Right. That I think is a great example of, of, and it is, you know, in our DNA, when it's to be achiever, it's, it's um, we want to go to that next level, right? All the time. Yeah. And, and, and that's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that's okay, but it's also, how do you find joy when you've hit yeah. that? Threshold, right? So you know, it's okay to celebrate, pat yourself on the back, take a take a breath, and go. All right, let's hit this next mountain, right? You know, ready to go because that's that's how us high high achievers do things on but a regular a, basis. A, a
0: thing that I do that I didn't mention because it's not like you know, totally the 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 health and wellness side, but I, I journal almost every day, and as part of that, I part of it's a gratitude journal. So um, I think that's helped. Where I, you know, it, it's interesting to read back about you know worries that I've had that I might have journaled about. And, you know, most, most worries don't really come to fruition. <laughs> uh, I did a blog post on that too, by the way, there's, there's research on that. Um, but also, you know, there's all this research that's saying if, if you're, you practice gratitude, you can, you know, kind of step back and, you know, maybe enjoy some things around your life a little bit more.
1: Okay. So final big quagga, well, two, two last things here, not your own book, but a book that really inspired you that you'd like to share with others? Um, yeah, gosh, there's so many. Um, really on the
0: investment side, probably my favorite investment book is The Success Equation by Michael Mobison. Uh, it's called The Success Equation, Untangling um, Skill from Luck in Business, Sports and Investing. And, and I actually you know, quote it quite a bit in, in my chapter on skill versus luck. That had a big impact on my thinking. And, and really for me, a book that like we all have this recency bias. So like, I just read this or I just read that. And, and I read a lot. So in 2019, I read 101 books. My goal was hundred books. And I usually read 70 to 80 books a year. So I, I read quite a bit, but really the books that like, I most recommend are the ones I can think back and go, Oh, here's at least one big thing. Often, you know, five or 10 things that really changed my view of how I see the world. I mean, the success equations one, obviously the black swan by Nassim tolib is, is, is another that I've read three times. Thinking fast and slow, just like, wow. Winning the loser's game by Charles D. Ellis, just wow. So these are all you know investment li- related ones. Um, a non-investment related one, again, that just like knocked my socks off. I mean, it's pretty long and technical, but it's called Scale. It's by Jeffrey West, who used to be the head of the Los Alamos Laboratory and the head of the Santa Fe Institute, and it's on power law distributions, the entire book. (laughs) And, but it's a lot of stories and examples, but like, I was just like, head, I was just like, holy cow, like completely changed, like how I like view the, view the world. So yeah, all, all these are, I think books that come to mind that really affected my thinking.
1: John, how can people learn, connect, find more about you, buy your book? Yeah, yeah. So um,
0: the book, Uncertainty Solution, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You know, it's all. It should be all over the place. Uh, it's definitely on Amazon <laughs> and Barnes and Noble. Um, but my website is John M. Jennings. So John, J O H uh, N M is in Michael Jennings. No, no dots or periods or anything. Um, uh, dot com. And importantly, you know, you can find out more about the book. But that's where you find my blog. Um, it's up in the in the menu, it's called the iFod IFOD. Interesting fact of the day. And I'd love to have um, you know, people as subscribers. So uh, it's just on non-financial stuff, usually just random sort of things. This week it was on, you know, should fire trucks be lime green instead of red? Why are they red when you can it's not that great of a visible color, especially in dusk at, at night? And the one that's about to go out uh, today um is on this idea from Peter Otia that I got from his book of a you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, decathlon for, you know, hundred year old people, like, what would you do? Like, you know, he gives his patients a list of 50 things and then says, what 10 things do you want to still be able to do if you live to a hundred? And, you know, we, we don't want to, you know, a lot of people say, I don't want to live to be a hundred because they see how most hundred year olds are, right. (laughs) Or 90 year olds or even 80 year olds. But it's like, it's things like, um, you know, to be able to walk up three flights of steps without stopping and to take a 20 pound carry on and put it overhead to, to pick up your grandchild or great grandchild at that point. Probably. But, but yeah, it's, th- it's things like that. And then it's like, how do you, how do you train to get to that point? So that's my blog. It's just on, you know, random things that are sort of interesting to some people.
1: Love it. No, thank you, John. Great ways to connect. This has been an amazing podcast. I'm so excited that you've launched your book, gone all effort. You you took all I loved it how you talked about the difficulty, right, of getting over ourselves, if you may, and having the confidence, right, to be able to share its hard. It's really hard. I can, I can um, sympathize for sure. You know, well, I, as, as really you know seen, with, really with, seen, with the yes. book as
0: well, like you you create something and then you put it out in the world and you know, it's tough. It's, it's a lot of
1: vulnerability and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's not easy. Yeah. So once again, thank you so much, John, for being on the measure. Success podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. You bet. And to everyone else who's listening, I hope you've enjoyed this. Once again, how we continue to get great ratings and reviews is by you. Uh, If you love this episode, go out and rate us please on your favorite uh, podcast distribution. And as we always like to say, wishing you the very best at measuring your success. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Measure Success podcast. We'll see you again next time to learn from the best. Remember to subscribe now to get future episodes.